Good morning. I'm Mark for the, yeah, oh, I heard someone, I heard someone respond for the good morning. I appreciate that. Um, yes. Well, many of you know, uh, this past week, um, one of the greats, Eugene Peterson, passed away after uh, his, or I was going to say after his long obedience in the same direction, but really he's just continuing his long obedience in the same direction. Uh, as uh, many have said, he's just moved his address, right? Um, and uh, I, so I found myself reflecting on, on Eugene uh, a good bit this last week. Uh, he had a profound impact on my life, though I only met him once. I didn't really, it wasn't really a meeting. It was, it was a large room, and I got to ask him a question during a Q&A. Uh, but it was a little bit, I was a little bit of a fanboy uh, <laughs> in that moment. Uh, but he has, he has had a profound impact on me as a pastor and as someone who has kind of been asking this question for, you know, a lot of, a lot of my life since college of, am I called to be a pastor? And if so, what, is, what does that look like for me? And Eugene Peterson's really helped me answer that question. And the best thing is that he wrote a ton of books about being a pastor, and so he's going to continue to help shape me, uh, I trust, for, for the rest of my career. He also uh, authored The Message, the very popular contemporary translation of the Bible, if you're familiar with that. Um, but I just wanted to reflect a little bit before I, we get into our, our passage in Acts this morning about one of the ways that Eugene Peterson has impacted me, and it has to do with how I think about preaching. Um, one of the key words for, uh, for Eugene is imagination. Imagination. And uh, he applies... Or, or, or brings imagination into all kinds of different aspects of the Christian life, and in particular into this work of being a pastor. And so this, this notion of biblical imagination is something that Eugene Peterson has instilled in me, and it very much impacts how I preach, uh, and, or what I'm trying to do uh, when I preach, when I come up and, and talk for a while about the Bible. Um, and, and the notion of biblical imagination is this, right? That as your pastor, I want to speak and live the words and the truths of the Bible in such a way that individually and collectively, we can kind of play in these stories. And that our imagination gets enlivened and sparked by the biblical story. The truths and the comfort and the challenges that we find there. Right? And as we do that, we'll find our hearts and minds more open to discovering that God is actually alive and present and at work in the everyday stuff of our lives. That takes imagination. Because without imagination, if we're just kind of plodding along, uh, we can be pretty blind to that reality, pretty ignorant to that reality. So um, this challenges, I think, some of the ways that we naturally approach the Bible. And, and for me, I think this has been one of the things I'm most grateful for is that it's, it's tweaked and nuanced the way that I approach Scripture. Because I think I grew up, and probably still do in many situations, approach the Bible primarily as an answer book. I come with my questions, with my problems, with my challenges, and, um, and if I come to the Bible, and that's, that's a big if, I come uh, as one who's looking for a pretty quick fix to my issue, a pretty quick fix to my problem. Um, and, and, and that is not... That is not primarily, I believe, how our interaction with Scripture is meant to work. That's not to say that we don't on occasion find answers there, but 
if you've lived enough life, and if you've gone to the Bible enough times with your problems and challenges and questions, you probably have experienced that reality that it doesn't always answer your questions, or at least in the way that you think it should. The Bible is not just an answer book. So I, I just wanted to, uh, there, there's a couple of quotes I'm going to read here from Eugene that talk about sort of how we do this, how we develop a biblical imagination. Um, but I just wanted to be upfront that that's what I'm trying to do as I preach. I'm trying to, both for myself and with us, trying to develop a biblical imagination. Uh, so my primary purpose uh, is not to entertain you, though I hope that on occasion you might laugh and that uh, you won't always fall asleep. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I can't give all of the answers that we all, we all come in this morning with all, I mean, our minds are full of challenges, of stresses, of joys, of all kinds of different things, and I can't possibly uh, address all of those or even know what they are. I can't do that. But my goal, our goal together, is to dive into the story of Scripture, to, to let our imaginations run wild and play in the, the, the stories and the letters um, and the, the, the prophecies and all that we find in Scripture, so to dive in and then to leave you. Right? That's what I want us to do when we come to this time every Sunday, to dive into Scripture and then just to be left there, to soak there, to marinate there, trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to do a work in us individually with the individual stuff of our lives, but also as a community, and it's going to form in us this biblical imagination that as we leave here, right, and as we live our lives in the, the, all the places where we spend the majority of our lives, home work in our neighborhoods, school, wherever that is, that we're going to start to reimagine how God is at work there because of how we've spent time in Scripture here. Now, I can't, if this is the only place where we're interacting with Scripture, where we're interacting with the stories of the Bible, um, that work is destined to fail. <laughs> but this can be one place among many where we are engaging with Scripture that way trust and really believe as we're doing that together that, um, that this is going to change us, that God is going to use this way of interacting with the Bible, with interacting with his story, that is going to, that is going to transform the way that we live our lives. So here's to uh, fantastic Eugene Peterson. I found myself reading a lot, of, uh, a lot of Eugene this last week, so I was going to say forgive me if it comes out, but no, I'm not going to apologize for that. It's, it's good for all of us. He says this, Scripture is not the answer book to all of our problems, but it's a doorway into the world of God's mystery. And one of the mysteries of this life is that God isn't interested in solving our problems in the ways we think they should be solved. That may be a little bit of a blow <laughs> to some of us, but it's healthy and it's true. Here's something maybe a little more positive. When we submit our lives to what we read in Scripture, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories, but rather to see our stories in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves. And that is such a comfort to me, to know that the God that we find in Scripture, the God who is constantly at work pursuing his people, redeeming them, restoring them, reconciling them to himself and to 
each other, making all things new. That's God's big story. And my story is drawn up into that. My story is a part of God making all things new. Isn't that good news? It's good news for me. So uh, that's what I'm trying to do right now and every Sunday that I'm up here. is to, to bring us in and bring our imaginations into the biblical story and then just leave you there, trusting that the Spirit's going to do that and shape us through that. So this morning, we're going to read from Acts 9. Uh, it's not going to be on the screen. If, you wanna, if closing your eyes helps you pay attention and not fall asleep, then close your eyes. Um, but there are three main characters that, that happened here, that, that are, are part of, uh, of Saul's conversion, Paul as we know him uh, later. So we're going we're gonna to take a read through uh, the first half of chapter 9 here in the book of Acts. This is God's word. Would you listen? Meanwhile, Saul, who we later know as Paul, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, for they had heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a, vi- in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. It doesn't end there. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on his name? Hasn't he come here to take them prisoners to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful, and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. 
And after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned their plan. And day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he'd preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. My prayer this morning is that you would, through the power of your spirit, awaken our imaginations that as we as we play in this story, as we wonder about this incredible appearance uh, that you chose Paul, the persecutor of your church, to be your chosen instrument, that we marvel at that and at how Ananias and Barnabas uh, surrounded him and loved him. Spark our imagination. Help us know how we live in your grace and in your power in our places of work, in our homes while we're cooking, changing diapers. Help us to know how to live all of our life out of love for you. Thank you for the gift of your word. Amen. One of the ways I think that we actually do kind of get our imaginations going is by reading longer chunks of scripture. I don't know, I, I grew up and it was the way that I was taught to study scripture and there can be great value in this, uh, but was really kind of sentence at a time. Um, and there's, there is a way, there's value in that, there's a time and a place for that, but I think especially as we get into the stories, to really hear them as stories, to hear the, the plot twists and the shifts and the, and the, the unexpected turns that happen, um, kind of got to take it in a larger chunk. So uh, one thing I'm going to say, too, at the beginning here, uh, we're, talking the, we're talking about Saul, who later is referred to as Paul. And I think most of us think of him as Paul, right? This is the Paul that wrote uh, all these letters to the early church. And so I'm going to refer to him as Paul, um, but I don't mean for that to be a confusing thing. This is the same person. Uh, he just goes by a couple of different names uh, in the New Testament. But we mostly know him as Paul, so that's on me. So... In our journey through Acts, we've actually skipped over um, a really amazing story that just we didn't have time to do them all, <laughs> so we had to make some cuts. But one of them was the, the stoning of Stephen. Stephen's one of the earliest uh, apostles, and he's preaching publicly, uh, and he gets into trouble, and he ends up getting stoned. And there's this little parenthetical note that Luke adds to, this, uh, to the story of Acts here, to this account where he says, the people that were stoning Stephen, they took their coats off because they didn't want to get them bloody and dirty, and they laid them at the feet of Saul, who was sort of overseeing things, just making sure everything was done with decorum, right? Uh, this is that guy. This is that guy. And so Luke starts this chapter by saying he's still breathing out murderous threats against all the disciples. He's still a great threat to the church. He's received the authority of the high priests in Jerusalem to go gather up anybody that he can find who uh, believes in Jesus and bring him to Jerusalem where they could be jailed or, I mean, judging from what happened to Stephen, worse. That's who this guy is, right? 
And so, uh, so the turnaround in his life, and then of course we kind of know the rest of the story, right? We have all these letters that he wrote to these churches that he planted, and so we can see sort of the big picture level, just the radical change that happened in Paul's life that really was focused right here in this moment. Ananias, who the Lord speaks to in a vision to go to Paul, uh, understandably is a little bit concerned. And this is one of those moments in Scripture where it's actually, there's some deep humor here, right? Uh, the Lord speaks to Ananias, and he's like, yes, Lord, whatever it is, go to Paul. Actually, Lord, that's not a good idea. Do you know who this man is, right? Do you know, are you aware? God, I don't know if you're aware. This is what he's been up to. Uh, are you sure? Um, and yet Ananias' name means Yahweh is gracious. And he lives into that name, doesn't he? He lives into his identity as a bearer of God's grace to Paul. And it's captured in that simple greeting that as soon as he sees him, he says, brother. And that right there is such a powerful moment in this story. Ananias, deathly afraid of Paul, who has devoted his life up to this point to the destruction of the church and to any who would follow Jesus, Ananias goes to him. And because he believes what God has said, because he trusts that God has arrested Paul while he was on his way to arrest all these other people, that means that his relationship has changed with Paul. It's not fear. It's not animosity anymore. It's brother. That is uh, one of the most powerful ways that Ananias lives into his identity as a bearer of God's grace. And then there's Barnabas. Paul goes to Jerusalem, and it, that's another little funny moment in the story, right? Uh, he's, he's like, i got to go meet all the original apostles and Peter and the disciples, and nobody wants to meet with Paul. <laughs> Everybody's like, no, no, we know who you are. Um, but Barnabas becomes his advocate. And there's, a, there's a, things that aren't mentioned in this story uh, that when you think about it, Barnabas had to have spent some serious time with Paul, listening to him, learning his story, in order to be Paul's advocate to the other disciples. Barnabas is the one who says, no, no, no. Let me, let me come on my brother's behalf here, on my brother's behalf. Let me tell you what God has done in your life. So while the, the main theme of this whole encounter is the radical work that God does in Paul's life, this radical conversion, um, there's also a beautiful image of the church at work here in Ananias and Barnabas and what they do in coming around Paul and reminding him of his new identity as a beloved child of God, as a brother, and then in, in, in listening to him, in, in caring for him, in hearing his story, and then advocating for him. There are two profound phrases. I have already touched on, on one of them. Well, two really profound phrases that I think help shape um, this whole encounter that, that Paul has on the road to Damascus. The first one is when Jesus asks him, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting the church, or why are you persecuting those who would follow my teachings, but why are you persecuting me? And there is so much wrapped up in that me, right? One, that Jesus is in fact alive and real. Must have shocked Paul a little bit in his, 
in the midst of all of his uh, persecution of the church because they believed in uh, what he assumed to be a lie and a false teaching, he encounters the risen Christ. But also, what's powerful in here is the, the identification of Jesus with his church. This is not just some people who happen to follow some teachings that a really moral teacher gave them. Um, this really, truly is Christ identifying with his body, with the church. Saul, why do you persecute me? And I think that this illustrates and, and, and established right at the beginning of Paul's Christian life the sense that what was most vital is a relationship with a living Lord not a system of beliefs or a system of morals, though there's certainly some of that as well, but the primary call to Paul is to develop this relationship, this relationship with the Lord who is living. In his uh, instructions to Ananias, the Lord tells Ananias, uh, you know, no, no, you, this is, I know who this is, right? <laughs> you can go, you can trust. I know what has happened in his life. He is my chosen instrument. And that phrase right there, that chosen instrument, that becomes, for Paul and for us, probably the shortest definition of the gospel that we can have, right? And, and one of the fun things here is, is we're getting this early glimpse into, into Paul's, you know, this massively formative event in Paul's life. But then we have, in most of the rest of the New Testament, all these letters that he's written. And he is constantly, in both later on in Acts and then in the letters that he writes, he refers back to this moment in his life. I mean, this really impacted him in a significant way. And it shaped uh, his understanding of God and of God's grace and of who Jesus was, right? I mean, if you just think about the, why are you persecuting me? Think about how Paul then writes to the church in Corinth about what it means to be part of the body of Christ. I mean, that some of that maybe gets sparked right in this moment where he recognizes through the voice of Jesus that he's not just persecuting an organization or kind of a random community, right? He's persecuting Jesus himself. So then Paul writes to this early church and he's like, you guys are the body of Christ. You are Christ's body here on earth. Chosen instrument as the shortest summary of the gospel. The first part, you are chosen. You are beloved by God. God has initiated this relationship. It wasn't because you reached out and found him. It was because he delights in pursuing his people. And he chooses us, though we don't deserve. an instrument. Our chosenness is not simply for ourselves. From the earliest of times, right, God's blessing to Abraham was so that Abraham would be a blessing to the world, a blessing to the Gentiles, to the nations, right? We are chosen in order to then go and reflect God's chosenness, to tell others that they also are chosen. This is the good news, to be God's instrument, God's tool in the there's all these, uh, these ways in which this little phrase, chosen instrument, works its way into these letters that Paul's write, Paul writes. Um, and it's, I was reminded of a, a phrase this, this week that uh, Kierkegaard said, that life, I'm not going to get this right here, I'm going to read it. 
life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And so in all these letters that Paul is writing, we find him looking back on his conversion and reflecting on all that it, it meant. And, and you know, as he writes all these letters and as he lives more of life after this moment, um, his understanding of what happened there is, is just enriched, and there's all these different aspects that start to come out in these letters that he's writing. So, for example, um, in Galatians, he talks about how it was God's pleasure and delight to reveal Jesus to Paul, to, or to reveal himself in Jesus to Paul. So this sense that it wasn't because Paul was doing anything good. Clearly, we know that actually it was, in fact, the opposite. <laughs> Uh, and it was simply God's delight that sparked this, that, that was the source of Paul's conversion, of his eternal life. And that it happens through revealing Jesus as he is. That that is this encounter with Christ is the foundation for Paul's new life, for Paul's relationship with God. In Philippians, uh, he talks about how Christ took hold of him, literally arrested him. And the, sort of the play on words there is like, well, he was on his way to arrest all these other people, right? But God gripped him, grabbed him, arrested him. In 2 Corinthians, he, talk about, he talks about light shining out of darkness, right? Here he is, he's struck blind for three days. As kind of a wake-up call, like, Paul, you, you think you see things clearly, but I'm here to tell you, you've been blind. But... You can see your own sinfulness and my goodness, my forgiveness. Light shining out of darkness. In his letter to Timothy, he talks about the overflowing, abundant nature of God's mercy that flooded in this moment, that flooded his heart with faith and love, even though he was the worst of sinners. Paul goes through a progression. There's a, there's a few times where he, he, he sets himself up as the example of God's grace. The first time he does it, he calls himself, he's the, the worst of all the apostles, the least of all the apostles. Then, then the next time he does it, he calls himself the least of all the followers of, of Christ, all of Christ's disciples. And then finally in his letter to Timothy, he's like, okay, I get it now. I am the chief of all sinners, right? This is the example of God's grace to me that would encourage you that he did this with me, the chief sinner. I think one of the um, uh, verses that, that I, I really love and kind of keep going back to that encapsulates what God's grace is and how it works is from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Think about chosen instruments, right? This is the good news. You and I are God's chosen instruments. Now hear this. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's chosen instruments. This is the good news. So there is a hope for us that I hope we can hear, that I hope we can feel, grasp a little bit this morning. Uh, and this is that none of us 
are beyond radical transformation. Right? Uh, Paul sets himself up as the ultimate example of God's grace, and what we see in his life was a complete 180. And so whether we've been following Christ for long or whether we are new to the faith, all of us can have that hope of deep, true, real change in our lives. And I think that we are often prone to think that we are, that change is just too hard or that we are beyond that kind of impact, you know. Uh, or we become simply complacent and we say things like, that's just the way I am. Um, and I think that the hope of Paul's story for you and for me is that none of us are beyond the powerful, the transforming power of God's grace in our lives. I'll one more quote from one of Paul's letters. This is from that First Timothy passage. Uh, here's this trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, right? Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul's transformation becomes, from persecutor of the church to chief apostle, uh, becomes for us an example of the power of God's grace at work in our lives. But this hope is not just for us, right? This hope is also for the world. Um, that, that no one, no one is beyond redemption. And I know, as I was thinking on this, and I would imagine that for you as well, there are people that maybe even now you're thinking of uh, maybe they're people you know uh, intimately. Maybe they are public figures that you are thinking they are actually beyond redemption. Like there is no hope for them. And Paul says no. <laughs> uh, no, they are not. If I, who was persecuting the church, who presided over the stoning of Stephen, a murderer, I can be changed. If God's grace reaches even me, who can it not reach? And I think that gives shape to how we live in the world. I hope it can give shape to how we live in the world. How we talk about people. Do we talk about people as if they're just too far gone? Or do we talk about people as if there is the hope of the gospel for them? That Christ loves them, delights in them, that they too they were just to respond that they too would be God's chosen instrument, beloved, brought into the family, available to be used by God for his glory. This is, uh, I don't know that this week is necessarily different from any other week, but it seems like it's been a pretty particularly violent week in the news. Um, the shootings in the synagogue and stores and bombs and I mean I I don't know that our world is more violent now than it's ever been uh, I think it's just differently violent but uh, how do we live how do we live in this world out of out of a passage like this how does this inform and give strength for us to live in today's world and I think that the response of Ananias and of, of Barnabas actually becomes really instructive Paul gives us hope, 
right? That none of us are beyond change, that no one is beyond saving. Um, Ananias and Barnabas uh, challenge us, stretch us to, to live in this world that is violent um, with welcome arms, with a hospitable spirit, with a, with a view towards other people that doesn't see enemy but says brother, sister. This is who you really are in Christ. This is who God is inviting you to be, a beloved child of his that is brought into this whole new family here where brother and sister are the defining ways that we relate to each other. Barnabas challenges us to sit with people, to listen well. There's no way Barnabas gets to do what he did in Jerusalem without really listening to Paul, which would have been a huge risk, right? We know his background. We know his story. Barnabas chooses to believe, no, I really believe God has done and is doing a work in Paul's life. And he learns his story well enough to then advocate for Paul, to tell it to others. You, my friends, are also God's chosen instruments in this world. Uh, and your life may look different than Paul's did. I'm not sure anybody's life has looked quite like but nonetheless, you are chosen. You are beloved. You have been brought into God's family, not because of anything that you've done. But you are also God's instrument in the world. You are a tool, which that can be taken in a negative way. So I like the word instrument, right? We've got some of these up here. These perform a function, but they add to the beauty You have that potential in the world to add to the beauty of the world because Christ lives within you. 